And we even saw that in the, the slides this morning as they were going by. And the reality is, is, is so many people get sidetracked that you know, Santa Claus somehow becomes the focal point for Christmas for a lot of people. And I'm not a radical person who says, you know, no Santa, can't do Santa, and all these kinds of things. But the reality of knowing that, that Santa is something that we do and participate in, but that it's a legend based on a real person, St. Nicholas. And Santa means saint, and Claus is, an, is a uh, derivative of the, of the name Nicholas. And so, as we continue and we look at that, we realize that it's part of the legend. But we've lost completely St. Nicholas in the context of his worship, his faith, and the fact of who he was. He was, by the way, a very generous bishop. He inherited a large amount of money and, uh, and gave it all away over a period of time, uh, helping uh, children especially. So... Uh, uh, those of the, that, that got involved, uh, you know, in the in the early part of, of church history, they, where they, they they said the patrons of saints, you know, certain things. He was the the patron of children. He was the one that that, that was celebrated as the one who loved the, loved children so much. And so you can see how Santa Claus got, you know, all that he has. But nobody, you know, it wasn't until uh, the end of the 1800s into the early 1900s that Santa Claus took on the, the kind of person that he, we see now. And, and there are some things that, that, we, that people need to think about as reference to how he's viewed and to make sure our children understand the, the, the reality of, of, of the fact that he is a, a uh, well, you might say a myth or something like that, but he's, 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 he's representing a legend. It's like, you know, somebody says Davy Crockett, you know, and, and we'll say he killed the bear when he was what? Only three. The question always is, was he only three or was the bear only three? We don't know. But, but the reality is, is that we have a lot of folk legends and, and we sing songs about them and stuff like that. Well, the, 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 probably the most famous song about Santa Claus in, in, in our time and thinking is Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Written in 1934, and uh, it was uh, played on, uh, on, on uh, the radio and, and became very, very popular. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the song was really kind of intimidating if you think about it as to what it says to the children listening to it. You know, it starts off with, you better watch out. You know, uh, you, know uh, you, you better not cry, you better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. In other words, he's you know, and in some cultures, Santa Claus actually carries a uh, a a a, um, what do they call it? It's switch. Thank you. (laughs) I I, you know stick. (laughs) No, he carries a switch, and, and the idea was, in some cultures, Santa Claus would come early to their areas, you know, into their communities. And he would interview all the kids and see who's naughty and nice and stuff like that ahead of time. And, and of course, now we have the, the Santa comes early, the kids sit on his lap and they talk to him that way. But the idea was is that he is watching. And the implication, when you look at the song, is that, that you know, he sees you when you're sleeping. 
He sees you when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And, and the idea is, 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 is we begin to look at him and say, oh, he's got the ability to see and to assess and to judge. And he, and he doesn't judge with grace, which is an interesting thing as well. Uh, and, you know, and so uh, we want to make sure that Santa Claus doesn't represent the focal point of our homes as Christians at Christmas time. And uh, so we look at this and, and, and as we celebrate Advent and, and uh, we, we, we look at t- today, we're looking at Jesus is better than Santa. It's the second in the series. Jesus nailed the list to the cross. Okay, Santa keeps his list and, and, and he checks it off who's naughty and nice. Jesus took the cross, our, our, our list and he nailed it to the cross through grace and extended it to him. And if he hadn't done that, my, my, my naughty would have overwhelmed the list. And so through his grace, and that's what we're looking at today. So uh, Jesus is better than Santa. Jesus nailed the list to the cross. I... Uh, chose a, a passage out of Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, uh, as a key reference for this morning. And so, uh, looking at that, uh, it, it uh, is talking about how we are to, to be, well, it uses a word as we look at it, to be rooted in Christ. And so, uh, let's look at this together. Chapter 2 of Colossians, starting with verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of, the, of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the power working of in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt and stood against that stood against us with its legal demand This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The background to this, uh, just quickly, is is, uh, there was, by the time that Paul was writing the letters to Colossians and some of the other churches, there was some competition coming into the churches. Uh, we would call it Judaizing. It was one of the terms. But there's also Gnosticism. 
And I'm not going to get into great detail about this other than the fact that the background was that it was false teaching entering into the church. And Paul was very concerned about that. Uh, and, and the teaching was, generally speaking, works-based. Meaning, you have to do the right thing in order to be right with God. And the right thing would depend on who was teaching in a lot of ways. And in the Gnostic side of things, there were a number of things that you could only get from the Gnostic teachers that would give you access to the things you needed to know in order to to be saved. And so it became a very uh, narrow uh, way of looking at things. And again, having nothing to do with Christ. And we'll look at that as we go through this. Uh, a major theme in, in Colossians is that you know, we are complete in Christ. We don't need any secret initiations or secret things to do. We are complete in Christ. God has given us all the information we need to know as to what to do. There's no secrets out there in reference to, our, to what we need to know about our salvation. And, and so... Uh, Paul speaks to those things, and we'll look at that as we go through this this morning as well. Uh, so, looking back then at verse 6, it starts out with, therefore, and you know the, the thing with that, you've got to look at it. Therefore, why are we talking about, well, there's something that's preceded this. Uh, and, and that is the idea of, uh, there's a, a, a struggle, uh, the, you know, and he wants their hearts to and be encouraged and and, and, and uh, re- just a number of things going on if you read through up to this point from chapter 1 and first part of chapter 2. And it says, So therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. So it starts right now. You received Jesus Christ the Lord. You've received Him. Walk in Him. And I couldn't help but automatically think of James again. Don't just receive mental ascension to things but physically follow after Him. In other words, look at the, the, the things that, that He does. And, and Paul will go on to speak here. Have the mind, in Philippians, he'll have the mind of Christ. Sacrificial. Caring about the other person first. And, and in fact, it comes down to the point where you have this idea of God, you know, you look at God as, as first, the other person as second, and yourself as third. So that you have this I'm third attitude. You put God first, other people ahead of yourself, and I'm third. And that's the attitude that, that, that would reflect a, a Christian walk. And if you really received Christ, this idea to walk in Him would be something not only you know, that you would, you would strive to do, but that's something you would want to do. Not to get saved. You couldn't walk in Him if you, if you weren't saved. It and it doesn't get you more saved. You know, it, it, it's because of what you start to realize who this Christ is. We talked about last week, Him getting to, you know, He knows us and sees Him. He wants us to know Him and see Him. You know, He knows us and sees us. You know, he, he, we want to now know Him and see Him. And in that framework, uh, he's given us the Scriptures, the, the Gospels, and all of this to come to a way that we can understand who He is, what He's done, and to worship Him. And it's an amazing thing as you grow in the Lord. You see more and more 
things come together over a period of time. And we realize Jesus Christ is as as much a part of the Old Testament as the New Testament is. It all points ahead to Him. And so that's why we have this scripture up to here out of Isaiah. uh, Is, is, you know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. uh, And and that picture of, of the coming of Christ. So... The Scriptures have been given to us that we might be able to walk with the Lord. It says in verse 7 that we are to be rooted in Him, to be built up in Him. Uh, the idea of being rooted would be the another picture that Paul sometimes uses is the idea of a foundation of a building and to be built up in Him that way. Okay, The idea of a tree rooted, what, what must a tree be able to do in order to, to be healthy, it has to, and, and, and of course around here, it's kind of hard. I heard somebody use this as a redwood tree, how, you know, big, huge trees, they have a tap root that goes deep. That's not redwood trees, folks. Um, but uh, the idea is, is that a, a tree needs the nourishment. It needs to be rooted well. And redwood trees, by the way, offer an interesting picture in another way. It, it's the stands of redwoods together that keep them up, you know. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, but the, the idea is, is that a tree needs the nourishment that comes from being rooted. So who are we rooted in? We're rooted in Christ. We have His Word to, to look to. And, and, and by the way, we take that position uh, that Paul teaches uh, to Timothy. We believe the Word is God-breathed. It comes from the Lord through the Holy Spirit into those who are writing. And we know that He has spoken to us. So we are to be rooted and to be built up. And it made me think of the, uh, the picture in, in, in Psalm 1. Blessed is man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the, uh, the, the way of the, uh, the, the scoffers or, or, or sinners or uh, stand, uh, sit in the way of scoffers. You know, but anyway, the idea is that he's like a tree planted by a stream. And this idea of being uh, is, is planted is that God does the planting. And so, God has taken us and literally taken us out of the world where we were condemned, we were dead. It's a number of different descriptions of who we were outside of Christ and has planted us by the stream of water. And and that picture to me is the stream of living water. And in the picture in Psalm 1 where it talks about the stream, it's a canal that's actually made to nourish that tree. And so God has, has a stream of water to nourish us and, and, and bring us up and we're to be rooted in Him. Uh, it, it says established in the faith. This idea of established is, is to be made firm or to confirm. Now, it's, we, we are absolutely sure we are established. We're, we're rooted. We are you know, foundationally plugged in uh, in such a way that we end up to look at this and, and we could say abounding in thanksgiving. We look at what all of what God has done. And if first off, we should stand amazed. And it should automatically break into the context as we contemplate it of the idea of worship and be in awe of who God is. And to be in wonder of who God is. And to have a healthy 
fear of God. Not fear of God as a policeman ready to, to you know, bombard us with punishment, but with the idea of the God of grace and mercy through Jesus Christ who redeems us and restores us, takes us out of, of death and brings us into life. And all the pictures that, that, that are coming through the Scripture that we can read, we are abounding in thanksgiving as a response. Um, and, and this idea of abounding is overflowing. Not just an occasional, oh, by the way, thank you, Lord, but, but to be thankful constantly. Uh, how many times through the week do I realize that I haven't really been thankful or, or thought about being thankful for the various things that, that I've been blessed with that day? Uh, the food. The fact that I can go to... I, I, I take so much for granted. The fact that I can go over to a faucet and turn on water and somebody, you know, I'll say it's drinkable and somebody will say, well, it smells like chlorine sometimes and all this kind of stuff. You can drink it and not get sick. Okay, that's by itself an amazing thing within the framework of the world as a whole. We talk in, in, in our mission groups of, of, uh, of all the people that are living on water that is tainted in some way or another. And, and we are blessed. I've got clothing that keeps me warm. I've got a roof over my head. All of these things abounding in thanksgiving. We need to be thankful. And what's amazing to me is to find out, and, and, and through missionaries that have come and shared with us, especially from Liberia and other parts of, 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 of third world countries over the years, we find that these people are extremely thankful. And they're thankful for just having Something small, you know. We, we, you know, one of these uh, guys that came here with a singing group um, from from uh, uh, West Africa, and he went to a, a supermarket. And this area was the first area that he'd he'd come to, and so it was the person that I knew that took him to the supermarket. He'd never seen anything like that. He was amazed that, at, and in fact, he he saw the guy pulling some produce from the shelf, and he says, "Where's that going?" And he says, "Oh, it's 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 not any good." And he looked at it, and he says, "What you know, like it's it's got a little bit of color to it, or it's a little bit squishy, or a little bit soft, you know." And and so we are we're so spoiled. We have so much to be thankful for. Is what I'm trying to say. And we just came off of Thanksgiving, and and you know we we need to continue that year around abounding in thanksgiving, overflowing with thanksgiving. Um, it's a continual response. It's an ongoing thing. It doesn't stop. It's, it's something that is a part of who we are. And so, the, you know, Paul makes it clear as he's writing to the Colossians, you know, walking with the Lord, uh, Established in the faith just as you were taught. And by the way, that's a key phrase to understanding the rest of this. Just as you were taught. The way you were taught. And Paul even goes as far as to say, if I were even to come back or an angel were to come and give you a way that is contrary to the way you have been taught. In other words, the established Word of God and what's been shared up to that point. He says, let it be, you know, be considered anathema. That's a harsh word. Damned. Okay? 
in other words, it's another gospel. Don't pay any attention to it. Another gospel has no, you have no room for that. You have no room to consider that. Don't even give it a second look. And we're considered narrow-minded because we're not willing to give those things a second look, but we don't need to. And I will say it with absolute confidence, with a narrow mind, we have the truth of God. And so I don't need to look around and compare it with something else to see if it's consistent with some other religion or some other part. Um, I did a lot of uh, study when I was in college. I wasn't a Christian in comparative religion classes and stuff like that. And you had to write. And, and I, I took you know, the, that, that idea, well, maybe, maybe Jesus would, at, at 12 you know, or a little older went on one of those caravans because they were all around there and went to, to Persia and learned about Zoroaster and because some of the things that, that he taught are very much like that, you know, and, and you, you look at all of this kind of stuff. The bottom line is that Jesus is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. And, and, and so uh, we've sung that. Now we're going to look at that in Scripture. And so Paul adds to this at this point, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In other words, don't, don't get sidetracked. Don't get caught up with the way the world looks at things. Stay faithful to Christ and what Christ has taught, what Paul has taught, what James has taught through the Scripture, and, and stay faithful to that. Don't get caught up by a philosophy and it says, he uses the word to describe the, the idea of this kind of philosophy, empty deceit. When you think of the word deceit, what comes to your mind? Lie. Okay. Something that is intentionally trying to deceive you. Well, on top of everything else, he uses the word empty deceit. means it has no value. The only thing that has value is the teaching of Christ. And we start to talk about this thing. And, and so an empty deceit comes along. It's there to capture you. And this idea of capture you is to carry you off and make you a slave. It's all tied to that word, to capture you. Carry you off, to make you a slave. According to human tradition. And the word human tradition is, is also could be easily translated... Man-made ideas. According to the elemental spirits teaching of the world. Teaching of the world. Elemental means basic teachings of the world. And this idea of spirits, by the way, is something that we need to be aware of only in in, in the context of of a broad picture. John, in, chapter, in, in, the, in the first uh, letter of John, in chapter 4, talks about the fact that we need to check out the spirit of things that teach and see what it is they're teaching and make sure that we're aware of, of that because there's, a, there's teachings that would take us away from Christ. And he says any of those kinds of teachings are of the Antichrist. We, we're so caught up with in, our, in our culture and our thinking, and part, partly because of Hollywood, with Antichrist being a specific point in time and man, uh, that we don't realize that the Antichrist is anything that opposes Christ. Any teaching has the spirit of the Antichrist if it opposes the Word of God. 
And, and so it's, and, and, and John said it was with us then and, and it's with us now. And so the elemental basic teachings of the world uh, are, are the things that teach you, that would draw you away, that would capture you and take you away from the teachings of Christ are teachings that you could label simply of the Antichrist. So, again, we're, it says we are to, uh, to and, and not, these teachings, it says, are not according to Christ. In other words, they're in opposition to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Do you realize what a powerful statement that is? The fullness of deity. All that God is dwells in Christ. Takes us back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Down to verse 14 it says, And the Word dwelt among us. It became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we have this picture of Christ God in the flesh. The deity of Christ dwelling in Him. Bodily, in the flesh. And you have been filled in Him. What a neat picture. We've been filled in Him. When we become Christians, what's, what happens automatically? The rest, reception of the Holy Spirit in us. It's not something you wait for. It's not something you have to long for. It's something that happens. When you confess Jesus Christ with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and that God raised Him from the dead, going out of Romans chapter 10, uh, the fact is you are saved. And at that point in time, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it says, you have been filled in Him. He is the head of all rule and all authority. There is nothing superior to Christ. Nothing ahead of Christ. Christ is God in the flesh. What an amazing picture. Again, we don't, why would we want to go anywhere else to look for something to worship or to, to rely on or to, to put it, place our trust or our hope in? He is the head of all rule. He, and this idea, of, oh, by the way, of having been filled is also to be, is the idea of you have been made complete. There's another way of phrasing that. You have been filled. You have been made complete. Meaning, everything that needs to happen for you to have eternal life is done. The point in time you have Christ as your Savior, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you are saved. You never will need to be more saved than you are at that point. Yes, we strive to have our lives changed. God works on changing our lives and causing things to be different and, be, and, and, and all of the things that happen. But we, we are saved and we have eternal life. We are children of the kingdom of God. And we just sang a song that says, Nothing will pluck us from His hand. We are children of God. We are saved. We have been made complete because of Jesus who is the head of all rule and authority.
There are some benefits that come as we enter into a relationship with Christ. You've been filled. You you have Jesus Christ dwelling in you. And then he says some things which for some of us might be difficult to read because we don't know how to put it into context, but it says verse 11, In Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Going back to Abraham, physical circumcision was a sign of being in a covenant relationship with God. By the way, did Abraham have faith before or after that? Before. He placed his faith in God and, and that was a sign that would be given to people and all of his family and those who would follow after him. Okay, but it was only to be a picture of the actual circumcision that would happen through Christ, which has nothing to do with the physical body, but in the sense of, 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 of the foreskin or, or something like that. But that there is a spiritual circumcision, if you will, that, that separates us from the world. And that's what happens here. We are cut away from the world. We are cut off from the world. So a circumcision, and he says, made without hands. So obviously it has nothing to do with the physical. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him, and he gets into baptism here, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is symbolized in baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is a picture of what Christ has done. We are, and I always use it, just kind of do it this way, the reason why we practice immersion is is because we believe it's the the most complete picture of, of what Paul is trying to describe to us here, and that was what was practiced in the early church, and that was the idea of you are buried with Christ, put under the water. You are now in the grave, symbolically. You are raised with Christ. You have now come out of the grave. Death is defeated. It's lost its sting, and you now are of eternal representation as you are walking with Christ in eternal life as a child of God in the kingdom of God. Buried with Christ, raised with Christ. We have been buried with Christ, raised with Christ. And whether you have never been baptized, that picture is still symbolic of what Christ has done in you. To be baptized, like I said, isn't what saves you. And it doesn't make you cleaner than you were the day before. Well, it depends on it, I guess. And, you know. um, but uh, the idea is, is you know... And Kathy and I, were, we recall a guy who every, every time there was a revival meeting at our church, and we had one once a year, uh, you know, he went forward and he got baptized again. And, and finally somebody explained to him, one of the evangelists explained to him, you don't need to do this every time, Harold. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's you know, once, it, once is once and for all. And... Uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a done deal in Christ. But baptism is a symbolic picture. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. It says, verse 13, that you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. 
God made, in other words, the uncircumcision of our flesh, meaning we had not been cut off from the world yet. The world was the number one impact in our life. The Where we got our references, how we would think. Blessed is the man who does not count, take his counsel from the world. You, yeah, that idea. We were, that's where we would go to get our counsel. By the way, for Christians, that's another thing that we need to think about. When we're looking about uh, things about marriage, things about raising our children, all these different kinds of things, we need to go to the Word of God. We need to go to Christian resources. We need to go to wise Christian people who have, have preceded us in, in doing all of those things to get our training and advice as to how to do it. If we look to the world, we'll get a, a, a different picture than what is scriptural. And on top of that, it's something that's constantly changing. We are this this picture of 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 being in Christ here. You you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, with Christ. We are in union with Christ. We are together with Christ. Uh, some of the pictures that are used is you know united with Him, filled by Him, uh, buried with Him, raised with Him. We've we've already used some other pictures: vine and the branches. Where it talks about Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We're plugged into Christ. He is the head and we are the body. He is the husband and we are the bride. The whole, all of these pictures come to the idea that we are in a union, we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, an amazing picture. This is not something that, that other religions offer. You know, we are in an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We've been invited to approach the throne of God in our prayers. I think of, of, of Tozer who, who wrote, you know, God, Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross for us to visit or catch a glimpse of the throne of God, but to dwell there. And, I, and, I've, and, and that's, we've been invited into the throne room, into the presence of God through the blood of Christ. And so we are in a relationship with God. Through Jesus Christ. Within the framework of that relationship, it says God has made us alive with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. What has He not forgiven us of? Yes, it says He's forgiven us of all our trespasses. Now, I have never physically murdered anybody. But according to the way Sermon on the Mount describes murder, I am guilty. I have been forgiven. All of the trespasses, past, present, and future. Does that mean I can just rest with a simplicity about it? No. If I really believe this, then this other picture of me being changed, not using worldly wisdom, but using godly wisdom, seeking the Scriptures as my resource to, to grow and to understand, I turn around and I, and I look at this and say, I want to live for Christ. I want to walk with Christ. I, I want to be rooted in Christ. As a result, all my sins are, are forgiven. My trespasses are, are canceled. Canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with legal demands. The key legal demand to sin is death. Physical death, but even worse, spiritual death. When I say, you know, even worse means because the, the spirit continues on, and, 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 and to, to, to be dead spiritually means to be separated from God forever. So here's the list of, of, of Bob Hapgood's wrongdoings. Now, somebody can, can say, well, when does that start? Well, you know, I believe there's a sense of accountability that's involved in part of that as to when I know the difference between a right and wrong. But I, I think of in raising my own kids, at, at, at what point they started to grab a hold of, of right and wrong was like when they looked at the, the TV and you said, no, don't touch it, and they look at you and go, they know that, that, that that's wrong, right, you know, right and wrong. But accountability, do they know the consequences, this type of thing? But at some point in time, we are held accountable for what we know is right and wrong and what we've done about it. And I don't care who you are because it says we all have to go to the back of our bulletin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all wandered and gone our own way. We all need a Savior. And so we have this list of things that we have done that the law demands a judgment for. And by the way, if you look at Zechariah chapter 3, we have an, an, an adversary standing there wanting to accuse us. And it's like he brought the list with him. You know? And I'll tell you it's a facsimile because my list has been nailed to the cross. It's gone. But, 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 but the idea is, is that he's there to accuse us. And if you look at Zechariah chapter 3 and you read that through, you realize Satan never gets a chance to open his mouth. Because this is somebody that God has already delivered, has already saved. He, Satan, he can want to accuse all he wants. He can't do a thing. His accusations have no bearing, have no weight. We're dead to our trespasses. We've made to, been alive together with Christ, uh, canceling the debt of sin and its legal demands. How was it canceled? It was nailed to the cross. And I believe that that is the literal picture of Christ being nailed to the cross in the sense that He took my sin on Him. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, every one of us in this room who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, who knows Jesus Christ and knows you have eternal life, trusting in Him for that, will never fully understand or know the consequences of your sin. Because it, it still is to be, you know, in, in a sense, it, it, we were still alive. It's still, it still going. Okay? And we'll never know the consequences because Jesus took it on Himself. And as a result, He knows what it is to be separated from the Father. By the way, the consequences of sin, the judgment is to be separated for how long? Forever. Only an eternal being could do that and, and still come back. And so Jesus knows what it is. The anguish on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is based on the idea that he knows what it is to be forsaken. 
As a result, we will never know what it is to be forsaken. Because He has called us away from the world into His kingdom. No one can pluck us out of His hand. It's just its so awesome to think about. Our sins have been nailed to the cross. comes back to this idea of, of, of Santa and, 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 and stuff, you know. His list he carries where? Supposedly, you know, in his pocket or someplace on his body. And he has it and he's checking it how often? At least twice. Okay? And his determination is to find out whether you're on the good side or the bad side and you'll be duly rewarded. If you're on the good side, you get a a, a gift. If you're on the bad side, you get a lump of coal. Okay? Which is a suggestion of Sheol. Hell. That's who you want. You know, <laughs> we don't want his judgment. <laughs> you know, he, 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 his, his list is ongoing. He keeps a track. He doesn't forgive. There's no indication. So what? I've gone through this song uh, uh, several times and it never once says, and he forgives you of your wrongs. But Jesus Christ, when we confess our sins and, 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 and come to Him and we ask for His grace to, over, to, to be a part of our lives, God opens our hearts with faith and, and, and His grace rushes in. And, and, and we realize that we have Christ as our Savior. And we realize that, that, that all of this has been set, set aside, been nailed to the cross. It's been taken care of. Nailing it to the cross. It says he disarmed, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and authorities made me think of Ephesians chapter 6. Our, 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 our battle is not against the, the flesh, but against the, the spiritual uh, you know, principalities and this type of thing. In other words, it's a spiritual warfare for, our, for our, our, who we are in Christ. And Satan wants to blemish that as best he can. And have, has anybody in here ever read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis? Excellent book on, on giving you a picture of, of one man's idea of what it would be like to be a, 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 a minion of the devil, a, a, a demon who is sent to harass a particular person and his accountability to do that and stuff like that and seeing God's grace overwhelm it at the, in, as it goes along. But the idea is God has worked this through and nailed it to the cross. And by the way, this plan was before the foundation of the world, before we were ever, ever, ever thought of in the sense of creation, before it was the plan of salvation was in effect. It was already there. My sins have been nailed to the cross. As a result, the rulers and authorities, the, the, the minions of, 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 of of evil, the, the minions, the spirits of, 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 uh, that would come against me, the things that would come against me, have been disarmed. 
They've been put to open shame. Satan has been put to open shame. At the point in time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Satan lost. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that, that there's a point where Satan will, it says, you know, he'll have, a, his, he'll have his day, but ultimately the foot will rest over his head in judgment. That has happened. He lost. The sting of death, Paul says, is gone because of the cross. It no longer has weight for all who have been called into Jesus Christ, who have Christ as their Savior. The sting of death is gone. You know, we don't have to worry about uh, you know, what happens when we die. We have confidence in the Savior who has pulled us out of the world into His kingdom calls us His own. He has disarmed our enemy. He has no power over us. He put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them. And I put, Amen. I was uh, reading an article uh, I pulled out of the magazine I was reading. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's about Jesus Christ and it says that, you know, Jesus is the greater is the title of the, arg- of the article. And I, since I was looking at Jesus is better than, you know, Jesus is greater than. And, and, I, and you realize that as, you, as I went through this article, Jesus is greater than, period. <laughs> you know, Jesus is greater than multiple exclamation points. I don't, you know, he's, there's nothing... That compares. He's greater than everything. Uh, you know, and but the the writer of Hebrews points out a number of them, and and so on the back was a list. Jesus is greater than Adam. Jesus is greater than Joseph. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. The tabernacle. Joshua. Judges. He's greater than than any king. He's greater than a prophet. He's greater than Jonah. He's greater than the sacrificial lamb of the temple every year. Why? Because he was the sacrificial lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Words of John the Baptist when he first sees Jesus as an adult man. He says, look, there's the, sin, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's greater than the sacrificial lamb of the temple. Because Hebrews tells us he does it one time, once and for all. And it's done. That's who we rest in. Jesus is not just greater than Santa. He's just plain greater than anything, anyone, anywhere, anytime. He is preeminent, according to Scripture, he uses the word, he's in preeminent in all things. He is at the top, at the head of all things created. Because it was what? Created through him and by him and for him. So as we come this morning. It's not just that Jesus is greater than Santa. We use that to, to, to be our starting point. But to realize He is the greatest, period. And so this is who we celebrate. And, and again, I, I'm cautious. Is it wrong to, to, to get caught up with the Christmas holiday spirit and, and the, the generosity of giving and, and all the things that go with that? And my answer is no. 
as long as it doesn't pluck you away, pull you away from the reality of what we have in Jesus Christ and who we are. So that there is an abundant outpouring of, of joy and thanksgiving, not just now, but at all times. Somebody, I, I don't remember the first person that said it, but Christmas should be every day of the year in the sense of the intent of having a day where you realize that Christ is, is, is sovereign over all things. That's every day, not just once a year. Not just a season. And so, as we approach communion this morning, we approach that reality that our sins have been nailed to the cross. The Son of God, nailed on the cross for our sins, poured out His blood uh, to purchase the covenant of grace for us. He came in the flesh. He emptied Himself. Here He's in heaven and He empties Himself of, of, of His uh, authority in the context of heaven uh, and, 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 and becomes a man. Not just a man, but a servant to men. Not just a servant to men, but a man who dies for men. And women. And we have that picture of how awesome a Savior we have. And that's who we worship. That's who we celebrate at Christmas time. And by the way, there's one more thing i just point out to you. There's the prophetic picture of Christ. There's the, the manger scene of it happening. Do you notice the, 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 the Messiah star or the, or the, the star of, of Christ? Do you notice the shape? It's a cross. Whoever did that tapestry had a full picture in mind of what was meant at that birth. It was something that was prophesied. It's something that happened. And it was something that would deliver us. And, that, and, and, and the cross is that picture of, of that was even in a shadow over the birth in the sense that that was what was ahead. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a powerful, powerful Savior, God, we have who loves us, cares for us, and who has nailed our sins to the cross. He has forgiven us. Not conditionally, uncondition, not conditionally but unconditionally. And not just certain sin, but all sin. And so we celebrate. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He went to the cross in the flesh. He died in the flesh. As a man would die, he poured out his blood. That's what we celebrate at communion. But we also celebrate the reality that he promised at the Last Supper as he shared that one time with them that he would not do this again until he did it with us all together in his kingdom. And I believe that's the picture of a marriage feast where we will celebrate with Christ what he has done for us. Would the ushers come forward, pass out the communion, hold it until we've all been served.